0: Hey, what's going on, Philip Sace? Here, I'm super happy to be here today with Mako for Talking Blues. We're gonna have some fun.
1: How how are things? In Are you in L.A.? Is that where you are?
0: Yeah, it's um, it's a zoo out there. <laughs> just, I don't know what else to say, my friend. And and are you in Toronto?
1: I am. The old yeah. stomping ground.
0: Well, but and and I, I understand that uh, you know things are things are still pretty locked down. But uh, you're, you're going to have some openings happening
1: soon. Is that right? As of tomorrow, I believe we're in the gray zone, whatever that means. We still can't go out to restaurants and to movies, yeah. and we still can't get haircuts. But things are opening <laughs> up a little bit. Well, hopefully, and it will yeah. continue to do so. But there's concern because of the. Um, you know, because of what's going on in the very end, so you just wonder if it's going to be. Hopefully, we don't have to lock down again. That's the that's the major thing.
0: I'm with you. I'm with you. I hope that we don't as well. And uh, you know, we've seen some certainly some curious uh, activity from certain states this week, which is um, you know, I mean, it's it, you know, people are at the end of their their wits. They've just got no patience left, and it, it, you know, it's totally in some ways understandable in other ways it's really really terrifying to say that you know hey we're 100% open and no masks and let's go for it I think it's it's a bit scary
1: um as a Canadian and I is it correct to assume that you consider yourself a Canadian
0: yeah actually I'm actually I have I have three I have I have three uh access to three passports so I'm extremely (laughs) grateful for that
1: it's Irish Canadian and American is that the way it would work is that the three
0: Right. So, um, well, I was born in Wales, so the UK, uh, and then I was raised in Canada as a Canadian, and then uh, the US um, uh, as well. So, yeah, wow. all three. But, but, you know, was raised in Canada, so my, my roots are, are definitely
1: Canadian and British, for sure. And, and do you feel like a Canadian and a British? I, I, I don't know if you define yourself that way, but do you, or do you feel more American now that you've been living in L.A.? So it's,
0: you know, it's a really interesting question and thanks for asking. You know, um, I think all are true. I think because my family, you know, my mom and my brother and, 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 uh, certainly my wife's family as well, like her sister and their family, my brother and and, and his family and everyone, our nieces and nephews, and, uh, they're all in Toronto, they're all in Ontario. And so it is very much still a home for us. Our heart is there. And California has been incredible to us. We've been here for quite some time now. And, um. I'm deeply grateful for the opportunities that that California um, has uh, has offered us well you know since we've been living here and um, and I wouldn't change it you know I'm grateful for both you know for different reasons and and uh, yeah certainly grateful for both and and also for the for the UK uh, for being born in the UK you know um, to have access to you know if I ever wanted to live there that would be uh, that would be a, a true gift but I, I really am thankful to have some uh, some mix from each of those uh each of those countries
1: so let's go back um and let's find out how you got into music so yeah thank thank you again for asking i love
0: this is uh i have to compliment you You've such a a wonderful bedside manner this is lovely <laughs> so um you know i uh i got into music uh, like right away really early my parents um you know, major music lovers having been in, in Britain and in London in the 60s. They experienced all of that firsthand, you know, a lot of the music that was happening at that time. And so certainly the music that my brother and I grew up with at home was all of that cool music that they grew up with. So I feel like, you know, I feel like I got to hear all of my favorite uh, artists starting from a very young age. And my parents enrolled, enrolled me in and my brother, both of us into music lessons when we were super young. So it started with you Know percussion to everybody's favorite, the recorder, and then you know, then we all moved along to the uh, to the piano and played that for about 10 years and trombone for about 10 years, and finally made my way to the guitar.
1: So, how did the guitar come along?
0: You know, all of the people that we were listening to, like my parents were listening to, was Eric Clapton, it was Ry Cooter, George Harrison, uh, Buddy Guy, Albert Collins, Stevie Ray Vaughn, you know, and and then just the list would go on and on and on so that was really where you know I got to hear all of it it's like yeah I want to play guitar
1: <laughs> so. so it would be correct to assume that you were already musical by the time you picked up the guitar
0: yeah I mean yeah I had studied uh royal conservatory piano for mm-hmm. for a number of years and uh as well like I was saying trombone and school band um yeah so yeah for quite I didn't start playing guitar until I was in my mid-teens, I started kind of late, as, as some people might say, or maybe at the right age, I'm not sure.
1: Okay, so I wonder how, how your previous musical exposure through the trombone and the piano helped you in becoming the guitar player you are today, or the guitar player you started to become when you first picked up the, the instrument.
0: Right, right. Well, you know, I'm definitely, we are all a work in progress. I'm a student for, you know, for, forever and always trying to get better and always trying to learn. And I think that, yeah, the piano specifically, well, maybe trombone as well, but just the idea of pitch and the idea of rhythm and the idea of timing and the idea of, you know, groove, but really like the idea of pitch is something that I think particularly um, having spent that much time playing piano, I think was really helpful
1: if you picked up the trombone today, would you still be able to play it?
0: You know, no, I was terrible. I was terrible. (laughs) I was, you know, I was in the brass section in the back, you know, I was with like the tuba guys, the baritone guys. We'd be just like fooling around back there. And then, you know, when the, when they knew we weren't playing, they'd be like, okay, you guys over there, bass clef, what do you got? And I'd be like, Uh, like it would just sound like you know dog farts but it was but it was it was it was a good learning experience i you know i could probably make an amazing fart sound with with it but uh but i don't think i could play you much
1: (laughs) well that's something (laughs) something. um when you picked up the guitar i mean 15 16 is kind of late and you were you started playing in the bars pretty soon after so how how did you take to the guitar and tell me what happened once you picked up the guitar
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I had always wanted to play, uh, but my parents, you know, they were so supportive of the the music in the house and they had saved up to buy my brother and I a piano. My brother actually went to St. Michael's choir school in Toronto. And, um, so we were both very active in terms of music and, you know, learning, you know, piano lessons, all, all this stuff. We were, it was part of our lives. And, um, you know, I think I felt bad for a while saying like, hey, can we get a guitar now? I don't want to play this piano. Thousands of dollars. You know, so I kind of like waited for for a while. And, um, you know, one of the things my, my parents took us to see Eric Clapton play live. Um, and he had Mark Knopfler playing second guitar. And it was my first concert I'd ever been to.
1: Not a bad concert to be at.
0: You know, yeah, it was. it was superb. Superb. And so that kind of lit a fire where I was like, oh my gosh, I need to learn how to play. I still remember the moments of, of that evening. And, and so I waited a little longer, you know, and, and around the time when Stevie Ray Vaughan passed, I was, you know, as a kid, but I was moved so much by that, that it was, became really clear to me that I wanted to devote my life to continuing the message that I heard and felt in the, in the people whose music turned me on the most. So like Stevie Ray or... Or Eric Clapton or Freddie King or or you know all of this beautiful music that I grew up with, there's a certain um, commitment to the music and so I think for me, even from before I could play, it, w- it was sort of a uh, it was already a uh, a soul agreement, if you will that this is this is something that I'm going to dedicate my life to and and always try and get better and always try to spread the love and the fire. That I hear, and all the artists that turn me on. So, I think really out of respect and gratitude for the, for the music that's come before, and, and also on a daily basis, um, you know, getting into the woodshed, getting into the practice room to try to get deeper and try to, try to get better, always.
1: I get the impression that once you committed to that, then you spent a lot of time working at the craft. Yes. Yes, and still do. Like probably hours and hours and hours every day. Every day. Yeah,
0: still today. I was practicing just before, uh, just before we uh, got on our call here. So it's I love it. You know, I, I I don't even think about it so much like practicing. I think about it like, like playing. I want to play. I want to see what melodies are in there today, and I want to work on the things that that I can make better today. Write a new song, you know, something. But I think, or you know, all of those things. But ultimately, continuing the message. And the power and the you know the the purity of the music in my through my own lens, of course, no one's going to be any of those people that have come before. But and I do think that there is a uh, there is something very deep and spiritual in that music, and so I'm committed to continuing that in my lifetime in my own way as I can.
1: Part of that learning process was hanging out at the bars in Toronto, yeah, and seeing some of the local musicians and I guess some of the touring musicians. Tell me about the people you ran across and the influences or the impact that they had on you.
0: Yeah, that's a great question cuz you know Toronto is really a hotbed of of serious serious musicians like and I always say this, you know, like we a lot of people talk about Austin and Nashville and you know certain cities and things like that and that's cool. I mean, they have some of the best to ever do it, you know, in, in these that coming out of these cities, beautiful musicians. And I would put Toronto up there. I think that there are a lot of really, really beautiful artists and musicians. And I don't know if it's because of the winter that people, you know, stay home and practice all winter or something, but (laughs) there are some absolute, like just ferocious musicians um, across the country. But I mean, for me, my experience coming out of Toronto, I'm thankful that I got to go and and watch people, you know, even, you know, on a Monday night, I could go and see a player like a gentleman named Michael Keith who's a true virtuoso player. Um, I would go and see him a lot. I would go and see uh, Kevin Bright sometimes um, if I could catch him, another virtuoso player, and, you know, players like Pat Rush and Mike McDonald and, uh, you know, obviously Jeff Healy. Um, there were other players like Brian Kober and the Nationals that that were tearing it up around town. Um, you know, Tony Springer, right? Like there were just seriously talented um I mean, I'm speaking a lot about guitarists, but lots of different musicians around around the city. And so I feel very thankful. I would just, I'd go in a lot of times underage. Like Grossman's was really like a place that I loved to go. Right. So I'd go hang out at Grossman's. And I mean, they'd go till 2.30 in the morning or whatever. And it wasn't really a big deal if I was underage. You know, I was just kind of like in there and didn't make much noise. I didn't drink. So no one really knew I was there. And I'd just be watching. Like Mike McDonald, I would watch him like a hawk. You know, just how is he doing that? What's he doing? You know, and- just got to learn from watching all these awesome players.
1: So the other awesome player you, you watched and learned, and, and I don't know if it's correct to say he became a mentor of yours, but somebody who who had you in his band was Jeff Healy. Tell me about that relationship and, and what you might have learned from somebody like Jeff. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, Jeff, you know, I think about him every day. I think about him all the time. and. Um, his influence on me is, uh, it's, it would be hard to describe in words, you know, um, Jeff was a, a hero of mine before I started playing and is one of my all time favorite, you know, desert Island, favorite guitar players. Right. You know, he's, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Ray Vaughn, Jeff Healy, Eric Clapton, the Albert Collins, like he's that top shelf of player. And, and I'm just so thankful I got to, to meet him. Um, a friend of mine named Corey, uh, who's from Toronto, and we've been friends for years. Um, he knew Jeff really well when Jeff was first getting on the scene in the '80s, and uh, they were friends. And, you know, hung out a lot. And um, Corey, at some t- at some point, had even I think he brought Jeff down to Albert's Hall in Toronto when it was still there, and and um, Albert Collins was playing that night, as was Stevie Ray Vaughan, who came to sit in uh, with Albert. And Jeff Healy was there. And so Corey was really instrumental in, you know, introducing Jeff to these amazing players. And they in turn recognized Jeff's gifts and were like, wow, he's one of us, come on, you know, and like heavyweight champ. And and so so Corey was kind enough. When I first got on, on the scene, I was playing a few gigs and I had signed a, a deal with a, a label out of Toronto and was starting to kind of get moving. And Corey um, – just was awesome. We'd hit it off. We were talking about wah pedals, and he said, "Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm friend. I'm friendly with Jeff. You know, um, maybe I, I'm going to mention to him about what you're doing." And I was like, "Oh, wow, really? Wow!" And So anyway, he he did mention to Jeff, and 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 one day Jeff came out to a gig, and I didn't know he was there. You know, things like that, and so I was starting to get really, you know, like pinching myself. And so one night we we ran into each other in Kensington Market in uh, downtown Toronto, and we both went into a club and we sat in together for the first time. And, and Jeff grabbed a bass, which was weird. And he said, "Philip, I want you to play guitar, go play some stuff. Let's go. And I was freaked out. Right. I was really nervous. And, um, when we came out of the, the venue, we played a few songs, um, like, uh, Willie Dixon or Robert Johnson and, you know, cream influenced songs. And, and we played for a while. I came out and he said, Hey man, you want to join my band? And I, just about passed out. But other than that, I, you know, and I was, I was freaked out and, and um, he just said, you know, what, what what, I'd like to do is have you join my band? We'll groom you, we'll teach you how to play on big stages because, you know, we play around the world. We're gonna teach you how it's done and we'll groom you and get you ready to go out on your own. How's that sound? You know, And here I am, I was like 19, I think at 19 or so at the time, I was freaked out, like really, really excited. And Jeff couldn't have been a more incredible friend, mentor, brother, just wizard. I mean, all of the above. He gave me so much room and stretched me like, you know, like an elastic. It was it was a really special time. It ended up being about four years, and um, I just can't, you know, I can't, I can't even put into words the uh, the amount of gratitude and love and respect that I have. You know, for Jeff and and how much opportunity. He
1: I guess it speaks to you as a player that he would jam with you once and suggest that you join his band. You know, obviously he saw something that that was very very special in you that he thought would be worth working with, which is pretty amazing. Well,
0: I you know I well uh, thank you and you know I think I'm still kind of like I'm still numb by it. You know, I I love Jeff so much and you know I love love his the gift that he was, you know, the gift that he had that he shared with us all, you know, he was just a one of a kind and, um, you know, truly somebody who embraced artists that were coming up and helped them to get going. And he certainly did with me. And I know that he did with many artists that he admired in across different genres of music. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, yeah. I, lo- I-, I love that guy a lot.
1: I wonder if if that didn't happen, if we can go back to your mindset before you met Jeff and you had you released your first album. Can you can you give me a sense of what you would imagine your career to be or what your goals were back then?
0: They were. Yeah, thanks. for That's a great question. Thanks for asking. You know, they were exactly the same as they are now. Um, And I and I really, you know, I was very clear on. On what I what I had dedicated my life to and what you know yeah it's very clear and it still is it's like there's no blur it's just very clear and it's uh perhaps that's something I don't know maybe that's something that Jeff felt that he recognized in himself as well like Jeff when he played it was very clear there was no you know there was it was just get out of the way or get bowled over you know so I think um and and I think also having that time. With Jeff, I think helped to develop maybe some additional confidence, you know, in that vision and in the dream, um, in making it a reality. So, I would have been, you know, chopping away at it, you know, uh, either way, either way, you know.
1: Uh, uh, so I wonder what that experience of touring around the world, playing big arenas all over the world with Jeff, what, yeah. what that would have taught you. I, I don't know, if, can you quantify some things that you start, just look back and go, oh, my God, what a, an amazing lesson this is for me?
0: Yeah. You know, every step of the way, I really um, was operating in a way that I was trying to be like a sponge, where I knew I was in Jeff's house. That stage, every night, was Jeff Healy's house. So I was a guest, and I always tried to be there to be of service. So if Jeff turned to me and said, okay, it's your turn, take a solo, even if Jeff had just played the most devastating guitar solo you've ever heard, and he's like, all right, Philip, what do you got? I'd be like, "Nope," <laughs> You know, and I just have to, I would just have to go for it. And that's what I meant by him stretching me, he took me out of the comfort zones, um, you know, and, and he was patient with me to, to yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just think about like he would, you know. For instance, one of the, one of my favorite memories, we went to the Mantra Jazz Festival in Switzerland, which is a really prestigious festival. Um, you know, one of the reasons I had known so like I was so aware of it was that Stevie Ray Vaughan had played there uh, in the early '80s, and that's where you know his career had a real lifting point from that from that place. But it's been a very famous um, international festival for decades. Mm-hmm. And so Jeff was playing and, and it was like my first time in Europe with them. And he's like, all right, Philip, you're going to sing tonight as well. He would let me, you know, so here I was able to sing every night for the first time and play, like really stretch out in front of many thousands of people, which I'd not necessarily had that experience in the same kind of way. So a number of things that I learned, you know, were even things offstage as well, like punctuality, you know, learning the songs, you know, um, dressing, showing, making sure that I'm dressed professionally, um, ready for the gig. Just be quiet and listen. I'm the guest there. Jeff is the boss. What he, what he says goes, what anybody else here says goes, you know, and I think really, um, you know, again, just being aware that I'm the apprentice. So, you know, like try to, try to, and, and everything that Jeff did in every night, like just, just subtle things sometimes, like he would He just knew when to tell the right joke during a live show or he knew how to, he just, you know, I think every, watching every single thing that he did over those four years. And and I think not necessarily trying to emulate that, but trying to just use it as a guide through the rest of my life, through the rest of my career, you know. Um, So I don't know if that really gets to it, but there was, it's, I mean, then there's the playing stuff, you know, Jeff would play and sing things. And you'd be looking at him going, how is he playing that? I don't even know what that is. Like, because he's playing on his lap and it's impossible to try to, you know, I'd go back to the hotel room and try and figure it out. And, <laughs> you know, so I think, I think over the years as well, trying to, um, trying to pick up as many uh, playing ideas and, and sort of playing inspiration from Jeff. There was a lot of that as well, but it was very full it wasn't only the music there was there was a lot off stage too that i learned.
1: Okay so you mentioned about singing. Um i'm not sure if you get much credit for your singing voice but you do have a decent voice as a singer. Oh, thank you. Um i don't know if you've worked on your singing as much as you have worked on your guitar playing but tell me about the singing side of your your musicality and and how how much work you put into that.
0: Yeah, thanks Mako. I appreciate that. Um yeah, it's something that, you know, for a long time, um, you know, like in a in a live music venue, it can be loud. And so sometimes if you just go up to a microphone and you just kind of, yeah, yeah, you kind of scream a little bit. You know, you can kind of get away with it for a while until you start blowing out your voice or damaging your voice. You're playing four nights in a row and no sleep. And you realize on the third gig, like, I got no voice left. I can't, you know. So I started doing some work with... Um, a vocal teacher actually out of Toronto. His name was Bill Vincent and he had worked with a vocal coach to the stars. His name is Seth Riggs and um, he had learned that, that method. So I, when I was living in Toronto, I had worked with him. I think he was also working, maybe he worked with some other people that were working with the Jeff Healy group, maybe Amanda Marshall, maybe some of them. I can't remember, but you know, he, he was a very talented uh, vocal coach and so I worked with him for a while. And then when we moved out to Los Angeles, I started working with um, uh, right at Seth Riggs' home, like in his home with uh, an instructor named Chip Hand. And we were working on all kinds of crazy warm-ups and things. And so I just, I, I work on those as, as often as I can. If I'm in the car before a show, I'll try to warm up as best I can. Cause it's, it's a different, it's a different kind of a, like you can blow your voice out right in a very different way than you can, say from if you're a drummer and you're just playing the physical drums or the physical guitar you' I think the voice is is a little more sensitive, so you can't just turn it up like a guitar amp you know you gotta you gotta take good care of it, and at a certain point, if you heard it, it's diminishing returns so I think yeah, vocal exercise are very important to me
1: and and so I know you work very hard at your guitar playing and you practice hours and hours a day, and have for many, many years, does that same discipline go into your singing? Sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, it does. I just, I'm not going to sing as long every day as I would play, right? Right. So maybe I will sing for half an hour each day. Or if I, if you know, if I'm going to be in the car, then I'll, most times, if I'm alone in the car, I will, uh I will bring the vocal warm up. So if I have a, you know, 20 minute drive somewhere, I'll be in there just, you know, and, you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like doing your push-ups for the day or something. You know, so so yeah, I, I think it's something that again, you know, um, I continue to work on, continue to develop, and and uh, I'm a student of music, always working at it.
1: Okay, so while you're with Jeff, now you're working with a band that's at a different level, uh, a bigger level, with big the machine behind it, the the business of music. Hmm. What did you learn about the business side of music while you were there? Or did you just treat it as a learning experience from a playing standpoint? Did you get much exposure to the business side of things? Did Jeff give you advice on the business side? Because I think he had some very strong feelings about that side of the business.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And again, just great question, Mako. And so Jeff and I personally didn't talk about business. We, you know, he he would come to me from time to time and say, like, I, I remember clearly we were on a bus somewhere out West in Western Canada. And I think he said, uh, he said, you know, Phil, uh, you know, I think it might be time for you to jump out of the nest soon. How would he, what do you think about that? Like, he was like, you know, I think you're, you're getting close here. It might be time for you to get going, my friend, you know, like, not, not like I don't want you in my band, but I think, I think we're ready to, you know, get, I just thought like, I never forget that. Like that, that would be as far as the sort of business end of things would go between Jeff and I, I was managed by, um, Forte management, who was their management, Amanda Marshall's management, but I didn't talk with Jeff about any of those kinds of things. Him and I were strictly musical or telling jokes and having fun. Um, and, uh, you know, but certainly, um, you know, there were there were certain things that that were going on with with the management. You know, um, we had started to do some some work for my career with Atlantic Records out of New York. Um, you know, did which was when I started coming out to Los Angeles and doing some more writing and recording. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of the business, I did I did learn a lot. I mean, I learned about some things that that maybe I would do and and other things that maybe I wouldn't do. Um, but really. You know, I had learned a little bit before that I had signed a, a record deal coming out of pretty much coming out of high school. Is like I played one or two gigs and was offered something, and I didn't know any better. And it was a really good opportunity. I'm very thankful for it. Um, but I think from that I learned a lot about the business. Um, and then moving in with with Jeff Healy and, and the group, I, I guess there was a sense of um, there was a sense that you know i'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how to word this. Um, the first business experience that I had on my own didn't feel that great. Um, I think moving forward from there at the time it was very exciting, but contractually became a bit of an issue, um, which my parents helped me get out of and and you know we had to deal with some of that um, but in terms of uh, you know moving forward, my focus was with Jeff, the business kind of getting training getting myself ready and then yeah and then and then moving on from there so i don't know if it answers it yeah yeah directly but
1: uh i I wonder when when he said maybe it's time for you to leave the nest how did you feel about that did you did you inside feel that maybe it was time for you to pursue your solo career or what were your thinking at that point
0: yeah exactly i mean it was it was um it was you know i had been working with with jeff for you know about four years and um, and I think, yeah, I think it was becoming clearer that I was ready to go out, more ready to go out on my own. And Jeff never like he would never try to change me into just being a side person. He knew w- that I wanted to go and was training to go. And, and so he was just like, Hey man, you know, I took it as a, as a pat on the back and like a, a vote of confidence.
1: So you, at that point you decided to move to LA. Yeah. Or soon after you moved to LA. What was the thinking behind that? Was it necessary for your career, you think, that you, you got into the American market, or what was the thinking behind moving to LA?
0: Yeah. So, you know, as as best as I can remember at that time, so with Jeff, like we would, you know, we would go and have these incredible experiences around the world, Europe, South America, across North America, you know, US, Canada, like all different places, um, UK, and and then a lot of times, you know, I'd come like and I saw that there was a huge market. For roots music, this music that I love, that I grew up loving, you know that I devoted my life to, huge audience for it internationally and And then I remember you know, I'd come back to Toronto and I'd be trying to like get something going on my own, and it was always like there was always some kind of reason why somebody wouldn't you know get involved, oh, it's blues, we don't look at blues, or you know oh, it's blues, or oh you know if you change, we'll work with you." And, and then I would go out and do a gig with Jeff and we'd go to Europe and then I'd sing a couple songs or whatever and then there'd be an opportunity for me to go out and do things on my own there. But then I would come back and try and get it going in Toronto and it was really frustrating. It's kind of like, whoa, wow. Like, I, you know, I'd, like to, I'd like to get some lift here and it was just kind of, it felt like the ceiling was really low. And so um, that was frustrating. And I know that Jeff had to leave Toronto to get, and just something going on. Um, he was around playing for people and they would come down and see him record labels. And they would say, where's the gimmick? If you could even believe it in the eighties. And he then went and played in New York mm-hmm. signed instantly by Clive Davis and became a star. Right. So, and I'm not saying that as like a, it's not the same for everyone, but the limitations were really bothering me. And I, and it was, um, And it was upsetting. And I'd started working with like Marty Fredrickson, a producer in LA and Mike Bradford in LA. And they were like, dude, you just need to come down here and get to work. Like, you know, so I think it it was really kind of a, um, an amalgamation of things, you know, not really being able to get any attention from the Canadian industry, uh, in Canada or very little. And, um, and then I think, you know, the opportunity to come to the U S, um, and work with some really amazing people and,
1: and yeah. And then you move down there, and and then you wind up working with Uncle Cracker and also Melissa Etheridge. I presume partly because you were in L.A.
0: That's right. That's exactly right. So with Los- yeah, with Uncle Cracker, he at the time um, had this cover of Doby Gray's song called "Drift Away." Great song, and it was huge that year. Right? It was like it was coming out of the it was coming out of the ground. It was coming out of trees. Like it was everywhere. And um, Mike Bradford, a producer who I connected with um, and, and had worked with, he said, look, Uncle Cracker needs a guy that can play and sing. Do you want to do it for a little while? And I was new in LA. And I said, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, we got to pay rent. We're, I don't know anyone here. you like, let's go. Um, and it turned out to be that he had this huge hit. So it was really exciting at the time to, you know, to experience all those nighttime shows, you know, like the whatever Leno and, you know, whatever was on at that time. And, and I think traveling in that way when an act has that kind of a number one buzz for, I think he had, it was 28 weeks or something. It was like wow. really quite an experience, like a very, I'm grateful for the experience. And, and, you know, he was uh, a real pleasure to work, work with, work for, and, um, and I'm thankful for it. Yeah. And, and that led to the Melissa Etheridge. Well, they weren't connected, but the Melissa Etheridge opportunity opened up and, you know, much like, um, like with Jeff, Um, Melissa is somebody that I really respect as a just a very dynamic artist and and one-of-a-kind singer very unique and in some ways she has some of those qualities that like when Jeff would walk on stage and everybody would applaud and he'd play two notes or something just to make sure the whole place would go silent like they'd be like like and Melissa had a similar effect on people too right where she would like she could come out, people would go crazy, and then it would you could hear a pin drop, and she would sing something, and the whole place would start crying like it was you know she just had had this kind of this power and this energy and and um has i should say but um so yeah, it was a real real amazing experience to work with Melissa, you know, we got to play at the Oscars, I mean she won an Oscar that night, this song we played on, and it was like. She would, yeah, there were so, Grammys, all, all this like fun high-end stuff that that she was doing. Cause she's just like a musical icon. And so it was, again, very much like like Jeff, a real opportunity to stretch and grow and learn from somebody who is a master in their in their world. And um, and I'm very thankful for it. So that was four years with Melissa.
1: I was wondering. Your guitar playing or your playing style, I would imagine, would have suited more of the Jeff Healy band. When Jeff said, do your thing, it was closer to what you do. I'm not sure if that's the same, one can say the same thing when you worked with Uncle Cracker or with Melissa Etheridge. Not to say that it's not the same music, but I I don't know if it's, I just get the impression that your playing might have been a little different or more reserved under those other circumstances Am I correct to say that? So,
0: you know, maybe in the Uncle Cracker situation, but he gave me times to like, you know, wind out a little bit. He was cool. You know, he was really friendly. And and I also got to sing on the gig a little bit, which was fun. Um, with Melissa, she was so generous on that gig. I mean, she would let me play like for 20 minutes straight solo sometimes. Like it was crazy. And then she started um on her record. No, I mean in a good way. It was so exciting. And she um like her shows were three hours long every night. Unbelievable. Like she's just like a marathon runner. And um, so it'd be hard to keep up with her. And you know, sometimes like two and a half hours deep in the show, she'd be like, Okay, up, go. And I'd be like, okay, I gotta go. I gotta, you know, kind of get the get the energy up because her and she's like the energizer bunny, right? So it was like. But I was always excited and honored, and, and she started writing songs that were intentionally written to create space for me to play on. It was like we did a made a record together called The Awakening, um, and uh, that was a, such a beautiful experience, and it's a really, um, I think, a really deep album for her, like really special emotional, special time in her path, I think. And um and yeah, she would write songs and just say, yeah, this is the part in the live show where I want you to play for as long as you want. And when you're done, just just look over and give me a nod. And it would be like, what? Like, this is amazing. Thank you. You know, and so, so yeah, she really, you know, and, and also while that was there, same thing I was saying like with Jeff is that never forgot that there was her house. Like there were butts in the seats, so to speak. Because they were there to see Melissa Atherton. They weren't there to see me, you know. It was like she sold those tickets. So I am a guest in Melissa's house and her stage. So if she wants me to kind of go and, we, you know, play a little while, I'm going to do it. I mean, of course, I'm going to keep one eye on her in case she wants to change it up or whatever. But she's the captain of the team. So, you know, I just was trying to try to do the best that I could to make it the best experience for the people at the show and certainly for Melissa.
1: It's interesting because Jeff wasn't really known for writing his own songs, mm-hmm. but he had the ability to take somebody else's songs and make it his. Oh, yeah. Melissa is a great songwriter who, who has amazing songs of her own and, and has continued to write great songs. Mm-hmm. What what did you learn from that experience of playing with Melissa? Like, what's the greatest lesson you might have learned from that?
0: You know, one of the things that I love so much about Melissa is, is her encouragement to accept and to really encourage, I'll speak for myself, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but for her to encourage me to be who I am. And to, if I want to be freaky, be freaky. You know, you just be whoever you are, you do whatever you want and you, you know, like just just really to embrace the truth within, the truth of who I am, the truth of the, of the love that I feel for this, art for this opportunity to connect with other people energetically, spiritually. Um, I think, I think really, again, in some ways, like Jeff, maybe finding somebody like where we had, where we had some things in common at our, at our core, you know, like there were some, some key um, values or some key some key connectors that really helped to bond us like things that I, that, that maybe weren't just musical or technical. There were, there were other, there were other pieces about that. And so I really, I, I really feel as though Melissa was somebody who encouraged me to, um, that it was okay to be who I am, you know, like, and she was like that with a lot of people, like in all walks of life. And so I really appreciate the, with her a lot of the off like sometimes just our personal conversations you know she's very powerful person very inspiring
1: so you leave her band and I don't know the circumstances but now you start to concentrate on your solo career you've played with a lot of different people do you know who you are as an artist at this point when you come out on your own
0: you know it's a great question again I think you know as best as I could for that time you know for 2010, you know, in 2009, I think, you know, whenever that was. And, and I think, you know, when the Melissa Etheridge opportunity had come up, um, you know, I'd already, I had recorded a record of my own that was called Peace Machine. And I had been selling that on the road. So we would say, get into, you know, okay, we just pulled into Cleveland. All right, cool. I'll see you guys in a bit. I got to go to the post office. I'd go straight to the post office and, uh, and like mail, mail out like 20 CDs that day or whatever. And it was like, kind of double dipping, right, on the Melissa gig and my own gig, but uh, but it was, so I've always been aware, like always, my goal is to, to you know, to be doing my own thing. I think these came along, uh, these opportunities came along as wonderful apprenticeships, if you will, um, to learn. And so I was always aware that, you know, always had my finger on the pulse of doing my own thing. So yeah, there there is a slight, you know, there, there is a slight updating that has to happen. Um, I've read other artists say things like, you know, that have played for really big artists and then go and do their own thing. Like one of the things you notice right away is the, the travel changes significantly. So you go from like with Melissa flying private to almost walking from gig to gig, like really it (laughs) becomes like, like, like getting into the worst broken down van you've ever seen in the middle of winter and driving, you know, Just, it's, yeah, when you could be in a bus, laying down in your bunk with private catering, and, oh, we're at the Four Seasons? Okay, you know, it's like a very very different experience. That was like a culture shock, unlike anything that that I could explain, you know, but but also I've been aware of it because I had been playing my own gigs um, and doing some touring alongside, if Melissa was off the road, then I'd be out doing my own thing. So long story short, I think, always aware of doing my own thing and um as much as you prepare i don't think there's any way you can prepare for you know when you jump out on your own you just gotta you just gotta jump out with no net and go for it
1: and do you have a clear idea of what you want to achieve on your own like you know when you work with people of that caliber whether it be jeff or melissa and tour at that level mm-hmm. and and when you're used to doing that for several years um is that does that become a goal of yours or it does got, it has nothing to do with that it has to do with making the music that you want to make.
0: Yeah, I think both are true. You know, I think um certainly on one hand, I mean the, the most important part of it for me is is the expression, is the music. Um and I think that, you know, having some of those um niceties or some of those uh, let's say the abundance, the the expansion to be able to travel in a way that's sustainable is something, you know, it doesn't it mean I, no one's going to say no to staying at Ritz-Carlton's every night. Like no one's going to say no to that. And I think the days of that for a lot of artists changed between 2010 and 2020, as we had the advent of sort of, streaming come in and you know basically turn the entire music industry upside down so even the bigger acts that for a long period of time were touring in, in, in a more um you know kind of majestic way this really fancy way i are not doing it as much because there's just not as much money out there unless you're Coldplay, you know so it's um i think it's it's a lot of shifting factors i you know i have no problem with with traveling in a comfortable way, for sure, in a sustainable way.
1: I recently interviewed Fred Mandel, who you play with every so often, I believe. I was waiting for you to bring him up. <laughs> um I love that you bring that you brought um, him up. Love it. And obviously somebody who has like yourself played with some very high level musicians. Yeah. What do you think about I asked Fred this and and I'm not sure if it's fair to ask anybody these questions, but what do you think it was about you that people like Jeff People like Uncle Cracker and Melissa Etheridge saw in you that said, I want them, I want Philip to be in my band.
0: You know, it's a it's a great question. I think that I think they knew that I was really serious, just really serious about the music. Um, I think as well that there was no misunderstanding about, you know, that like, yeah, there's no misunderstanding that I'm in their house. You know, I just tried to re- approach it from a place of respect. Um, I think there's true admiration for these artists, true respect and admiration for their accomplishments, but also for their gifts and their musical abilities. So I wanted to be there to learn. There was an enthusiasm um, and I think a, a level of professionalism where if you're supposed to be there at nine o'clock, I'm there at nine o'clock, you know, um, the best as best I can, unless it's something happened. Right. But yeah, for the most, you know, I think, tried not to, not to complain too much, you know, all, the, all those things. I think just trying to be a, a good team player and listen to the captain and, and listen to what the captain wants and, and try to deliver that as a side person. But, but ultimately, I think it was really clear that they knew that, I was really, that I'm really, really serious about it, like that this means something.
1: So I wonder, speaking of Fred, and he told me you guys play together every so often, what have you learned from him? Oh, Fred, yeah. I
0: just think the world of Fred. And um, he is not only one of my favorite people in the world, he's truly one of my favorite musicians in the world. And one thing I can say about Fred, and, you know, we've worked on different sessions together, whether he was playing uh, for, on, on something that I was working on or some, you know, something that we know the people. who, he's, Whatever he brings to the session lifts the entire experience for everybody. So you could have a song and you'd be like, I think it's finished. It's great. Okay, what do you think? It's great. Hey, Fred's here. Fred, you want to just play something? And then suddenly we would be like, this is way better now. Oh, Fred. Like, I don't know what. He's like, he's got some kind of crazy magic where he just, like, it could, he just knows what to do to lift things. He is such a gifted, talented musician and artist. So for me to talk about what I've learned from him, I think, I mean, it, it, it would be again, in some ways, like talking about like Jeff, when you're around somebody who is that deep as a, as an artist, um, cause he's not just a technical player. Like when he, when Fred's playing, he's bringing things out of the air that are, yeah, they're, he's, he's channeling, you know, ultimately. And he's, and, um, so I think a lot of times when Fred's playing something really meaningful. Like, I don't even want to play. I just want to listen to him because he's so, he's so special. And I think, you know, really just every time I'm around him trying to learn something new, you know, and he's so humble. He's the last guy to tell you about his accomplishments. Right. And then you're like, you played on the wall. What? Like you played with queen. What? Like that, (laughs) what is happening right now? Like, you know, when, and, and sometimes he'll just drop a weird story that, you've never heard before and it's like it's just a good reminder that yeah fred was you know fred's the real deal and uh you know i think again about trying to be professional from fred you know i think a lot of things i've learned from fred um on about being you know again being on time being professional being amicable being a good person to get along with on the road um you know all those all those kinds of things you know i think that again there was like a real um uh, you know, we, we just share a lot of common viewpoints on on a lot of these things. So I think for me to be able to see someone like Fred, who, have, who has done it through his life at such a high level, um, he's an inspiration.
1: Well said. Um, this year you released an album uh, earlier this year, which must have been kind of weird. But what was it like releasing an album during this past weird, strange year? yeah.
0: So it was definitely a mixed feeling, you know, um, the record had been pushed back already before it was supposed to come out just before the COVID thing hit, like in the fall before. And, um, the record company had decided that they wanted to, uh, push it back, which happens, you know, so it got pushed till, uh, April of last year. And so it was like, okay, well, that's fine. But then COVID crept up in late February, March for us over here. And um, it was kind of like, holy shit, what's going to happen now? And uh, no, there wasn't any discussion or opportunity to update. Um, I think with some of the other releases, uh, they updated them and and didn't. But, you know, for for my release, it was, uh, they they thought it was best to have it continue and and put it out. Um, And I think the kind of music that it is, and it's a tribute to my dad, the album, um, I think that I didn't really... I, didn't, I don't want to say I didn't care but it was like the message of the music was more important than getting caught up in any little games kind of uh you know games with corporations. I think it just kind of became a thing that okay, well if this is you know obviously blues is not something that's important to a lot of record companies. <laughs> Some of them they are but a lot of heartfelt roots music unfortunately is uh it's it's not always it's not always a priority, unfortunately. Um, And I think, you know, in having it come out and making peace with the fact that this album is really something that came from my heart. And it's something that I, I hope can serve as a friend for people, you know, during this pandemic that, you know, I'm not going to be able to go out tour or promote it or anything, but maybe, maybe some people will hear it. It will make their day better. I don't know. Or, or, you know, if they're having a tough time and they hear a song and it's like, okay, it got me out of it for five minutes, you know, then that's worth it. Like, let's, you know, let's have it out. Let's have it out there. Let's, let's see if we can put something good into the world with this. And so that, that became the focus and the intention over and above anything else. Like, how can I be of service with this music? How can I, how can I try to brighten someone's day?
1: Um, you mentioned that it was a tribute to your dad. Can you speak to your, tell us a little bit about your dad and what an influence he's had? on your musical career?
0: Yeah, um, pretty much everything that I listen to is because of him and my, and my mom. And uh, you know, all the, all the guitar love and all that. Yeah, I mean, you know, music love, all the artists, all the, you know, came directly from the music that we grew up listening to as a family. And um, yeah, you know, my dad um, got sick quite suddenly, and uh, he's a healthy guy his whole life. Um, no smoking. Didn't like to eat meat. You know, he was like just no drinking. Was very, very fit, very healthy guy. And um, he got an extraordinarily rare brain disease and passed away quite quickly. And uh, you know, we're still getting getting through it.
1: Oh, it's great that you did this tribute to your dad. I mean, what an amazing thing to do. Well, thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah. I had I had the opportunity to play a couple of songs for him. Uh, before he passed which was which was certainly you know meaningful and and uh he was always very supportive of of what i was doing and you know my parents would come sometimes they would get on a plane and fly to a city that we were playing in and you know come and come and see us um, which was always really meaningful you know we were really close so so it's yeah so it's sucked that he had had to transition but uh we'll we'll meet again
1: um musically are you still writing these days is that, is that an ongoing thing or does that is that based on the next project you're working on
0: yeah thank you for asking so i've been writing actively over the last year like i'm sure anybody who has any any kind of like needs a creative outlet I'm, i hope that there's been lots of writing whether it's our own very personal diary writing or writing a song or writing a poem or writing a card a love letter to someone you know i think there's so much to pull from right now <laughs> that, you know, I, I just, yeah, I've been writing a lot. So I think I have to be writing and even if it's for no one else to hear, you know, just, just to write it and put it on the paper. And if I go back to it a couple of days later and say, well, I don't think that's a song, but at, in the moment is very healing and very important to process what's going on and, and try to put it into word and music. But uh, yeah, I've been writing and I've got, um, got a bunch of stuff that I'm really excited about recording so i think it's just sort of figuring out how to do that in the covid world you know
1: yeah. my final question to you do, to do with the covid world but tell me what have you learned about yourself because of this experience of being in this pandemic world wow
0: yeah mako that's my favorite question um i think that's really deep no i i know i mean i really mean it because uh you know, one of the things I'm committed to in my lifetime is certainly, as I've as I mentioned, continuing the message of this music that, that I love and, and through my own experience and through my own lens, through my own way. And I, you know, I think having this time to strip away all of the, all of the business has really allowed me to reconnect and reaffirm and re not even like renew. Well, let's say renew my vows, you know, like there's been an opportunity to be still, to really be in touch with that part of me. That is burning as brightly as it ever has for the um, inspiration and, and intention of, of connecting with people through the power of music. And I think, this time has shown me that no matter what somebody says, and they say, "Oh, you know what? You should wear different clothes," or "Oh, you know what? You should make your music sound a little bit more mainstream," or "Oh, you know this, that, this, that," you know, "Oh, just write with someone else, and we can have a rapper on the song, and everything will be cool." And if that's something I want to do, then that's cool. But when I have somebody saying it because you know they they don't anyway, I think what I'm saying is removing the cooks in the kitchen, because when you have people. You know, different, various record labels, managers, agents, over a long period of time, that are constantly telling you that you're not good enough, that you need to be more like this other person or this person and this person, and what you're wearing is no good, and your haircut's no good, your new song is no good unless I tell you. Like you go through a decade of people telling you that you're not good enough unless you do what they tell you. It starts to fuck with you a bit. It really does. It doesn't part of my language, but it starts to mess with you. It can really. Can really destroy your self confidence. It can, not only that, it can really blur the, like looking through the windshield. It's like trying to drive through torrential rain. You can't, the wipers are going and you're trying to get through it, but there's just so much bullshit getting streamed onto you that it's, it gets really hard to, and a lot of people lose who they are. You know, they lose, it's, it's amazing. You know, this is all the stuff that goes on behind the curtain that people don't talk about, you know, like, and um, so for me, I think really getting um, a good taste of that for an extended period of time from people that really had no interest in seeing me improve as an artist, as somebody expressing something very important to me, but more so as like a, a disposable commodity. Yeah. It hurts. And it really, if you're not careful, can impact the expression and and the the purity of it. So this time has allowed me to renew and clarify my vision around what I've devoted my life to and to be extremely careful with who I'm going to be partnering with moving forward. That, you know, this is, needs to be a, I need to be very discerning and have very good boundaries moving forward. There's a lot of personal growth that I've experienced through this time. And in turn, that has been reflecting the music that I'm writing and the things that I'm practicing
1: um, and singing at home. I would imagine, I get the impression that you have a pretty dedicated following, that you have a fan base that oh. is special. I hope so.
0: <laughs> I, I hope so. I'm grateful for anyone and everyone that that, that, is, that is into it.
1: But I would imagine that that gives you comfort at times when it's not about the business, but people who just purely love what you do as a guitarist, as a singer, as a songwriter.
0: It's an enormous privilege in, in my lifetime to have the opportunity to express this music that I love and express things that, are, that I'm you know, working through in my lifetime through music. You know, what, what a privilege. And to have somebody take the time to listen to it. Um, or s- such as yourself, to ask such wonderful questions and take the time to have this conversation. I mean, it feels really good. I feel really thankful. So I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm mirroring that. I want to make sure that I'm returning that, uh, you know, the best that I can through, through the music or through an example in a, a day-to-day experience.
1: Well, Philip, we have never met, but it's been quite an honor just to spend the last hour with you. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, Mako, it's my
0: honor to spend this time with you. Thank you very much.